Welcome to the Joe Schmo Theology Podcast, where we discuss confessions. I ain't confessing nothing! Reformed theology. I don't know what either of those words mean. And apologetics. I am not apologizing for anything either. I am your host, Adam D. Murray, and joined with me today on this program is my brother, Aaron D. Murray. What's up, y'all? This is episode 11 of Joe Schmo Theology, the podcast where two dummies talk about smart things, or in this case, it's just one dummy. This is a solo cast. Uh, Adam has left me. He's ditched me for a Pacers game. He sent me a text yesterday saying he got free tickets. I told him the only way that I was cool with him going is if he was going to go and then propose to his girlfriend, which I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I'm hoping it happens soon. Who knows? Um, But as of this recording, it is October 31st, 2017, which many of you know is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Or if you're a pagan, this is Halloween and you celebrate Satan. So good job for those of you who celebrate Satan. I'm just kidding. I don't actually believe that. I I think Halloween's fine and it's fun. Kids dress up and go trick-or-treating or or whatever. I don't like it when kids trick-or-treat. Actually, I've got my dog out in my yard right now um, (laughs) barking at any kids who may want to come and take my candy. Actually, I don't even have candy. So I don't really feel like having my house teepeed or egged or whatever it is kids do these days. Um... But yeah, I, I was going to ask Adam if he did anything special for the Reformation, so I'll just ask you guys if you did anything, and since you're unable to respond, I'll tell you what I did. So, I I, I didn't go to any parties or anything like that, I, I'm not a party person. Um, I like to be by myself, sort of, except for right now. I wish Adam were here. Um, but what I did today is I just listened to a bunch of debates between Protestants and Reforma- or uh, Catholics, rather. Uh, one of them was Dr. White and Peter Williams' debate the Merriam Dogmas, which was okay. Um, it was it was interesting. Uh, they didn't really debate the Merriam Dogmas as much as they debated where they get their authority from, whether it's the church councils or uh, scripture or a mixture of all these. So it was, it was entertaining, I suppose. It was educational. Um, I enjoyed it. I would recommend it to people. Uh, unfortunately, they did not get too deep into the Merriam Dogmas, which is okay because I think just listening to uh, Peter Williams' opening statement about Mary and how she is a type of, or how the Ark of the Covenant pointed to Mary and how, you know, Mary is the type of Eve and all kinds of other really interesting, uh, quite bizarre things that I just I just don't see. And I don't think anybody else who takes uh, scripture seriously, who would just read scripture um, at face value would say, oh yeah, this is, uh, this is what it is. Whereas you can see that Christ is a type of Adam. He's the second Adam. That's pretty much explicitly said. Um, so it was, it was interesting. I uh, I do think that the Reformation is not over, and I'm a little bit concerned that Protestants, um, we could say, okay, 500 years, this is great, uh, we've made it, and not think there's any need for a Reformation, or a continued Reformation, rather. And I think, yeah, you uh, th- there's definitely differences between us and uh, Roman Catholics, for sure. I'm... <laughs> I'm more concerned about Protestants, though. I'm more concerned about evangelicals, because the more the more I look at evangelicals, the more I look at Protestants, the more I see that we have just come very, very far from what Scripture teaches, from what the Reformers rediscovered, and that's quite concerning to me. So I do celebrate 500 years ago when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door. That's great, and I praise God for that. But I, I'm also, I'm not a defeatist, but I'm just not celebrating a whole lot, if that makes sense. Like maybe I'm just clomming down because Adam's gone and he can't cheer me up. He's he's much more perky than I am. Um, and he would say something like, oh no, but it's great, look at all the good things and everything. And that's true, okay, that's, that's true. But I, I just am still concerned that our church is not, our church collective is, we're drifting away from scripture. And... I don't think we take doctrine seriously. Um, I don't think we take the church seriously. I don't think we take really much of anything seriously. It's it's almost a, a cultural thing, and I think that culture is okay. But if church is just or doctrine is just a cultural thing, it, it's going to crumble down, and I think we'll see that as we continue to get more and more pressure from the secular world. Uh, that's really not what we're talking about today, though. What we're talking about today is ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is the study of the church. 
Um, so I guess we kind of are talking about things like that. Now, I'm not sure how this is going to go, because if you've listened to this podcast for any time, you know that it's generally a back and forth between Adam and I. And since uh, there's no one for me to uh, bounce a ball back to, I'm going to be talking by myself. So if you're the type of person who says, I only listen to Joe Schmo because I really like Adam, this is not your episode. If, uh, well, nobody likes me better than Adam. Let's be honest. I mean, come on. Come on. Even though he's a Baptist. I understand that. It's okay, guys. No one's perfect. He also has bad teeth. So he's a Baptist and he has bad teeth. And he's short. That's it. Other than that, he's perfect. He's great. I love him to death. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and get started. When we talk about ecclesiology, we're talking about the doctrine of the church, the study of the church. Um, what's the church? Who's the head of the church? What's the focus? What's the point? Um, church membership, is that a thing? And then how the church is governed and structure and things like that. So all, those are all the types of things that I hope to cover. We'll see how that goes. I don't know if this is going to be a longer cast or a shorter cast or, or how it's going to go. I can see it going either way. Um, we When we talk about the church, I since I'm Reformed, Reformed theology generally doesn't make a distinction between um, Israel and the church. Now, there are some, there's continuity and discontinuity between the two. So there's the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. Um, so we would not say that the church begins in Acts 2 uh, at Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and everything. Now, a lot of people would go there. We would say, no, the church has existed much longer than that if you understand the church as being God's people. So, we, I, don't, I don't think it would be a stretch to say it, that the church began in Genesis what, 1 when uh, Adam was created because he was he was called out. He, he was a, a person of God. Um, and then with Eve and Seth and you follow the line. And, and all, all the people of God were the church. Now, I didn't use that word church, um, but that, that's fine. The word doesn't have to be present for the idea to be present. So one thing that I think we can think about when we look at the Old Testament church and the New Testament church is we see that they were both saved by the same Savior. Okay, the Old Testament church or the the uh, the people of God in the Old Testament they were not saved by anybody, anything or anyone other than Christ, um, as as we are. Uh, we both share the same destinations. Okay, so we're saved by Christ and we're saved for heaven. Uh, we're both saved on the same basis of grace, right? So God outpours His grace to us now as He did to them then. Um, and we receive eternal life by the same instrumentality. Okay, so the, the way we receive that grace is through faith. And we've talked about the five souls and everything, so that's, I'm not going to get too much into that. Um, other things you can look at, um, you can look at Romans um, chapter 9, Paul's discussion about how he wishes that Israel could be saved and that he would give up, or his, the Jews could be saved rather, and he would give up his salvation for his, his, um, his brothers, um, the Jews. Uh, but then in Romans 9, 6, he, he says that not all who are born of Israel are Israel. Um, and he has a whole lengthy discussion that, that continues on into chapter 11 about that. But the basic idea there is that uh, he distinguishes between Jews and Israel. So um, Israel, spiritual Israel is the church. Okay, And so you have, you have a physical people in the Old Testament, um, and they were marked out by circumcision, but um, there are many places that talk about they must be circumcised of the heart to be truly God's people in, in a redemptive sense. And it's the same way for us as well. So when, when we talk about Israel um, now, I, I think it's almost, you can almost say it's synonymous with the church. Okay, so I don't know if that if anybody's fallen with that, if they disagree. I'm sure there's plenty of people who may disagree with that. But that's just something for you to think about, something for you to shoot at, maybe do your own research on that. So when we talk about the church, what I'd like to talk about is who, who is the head of the church. Now, this is going to seem very intuitive. Like we're going to say, okay, Jesus, and that's true. That's absolutely true. But I want to put some meat on those bones, okay? So what I'd like to do is let's start um, in 2 Samuel 7. So 2 Samuel 7, this is when um, David has moved the Ark of the Covenant, and he is wanting, he's, he's basically creating this, um, this house for himself, this castle, as it were. I mean, it wasn't, I don't know if you call it a castle. Um, maybe that's a little anachronistic of me. Um, but this, this awesome place for David to live. And he stops and goes, why am I doing this for myself? You know, I need, I need to be building God a house, a grand house, something much better than what I'm in. And so he sets out to do this. And God basically says, well, hold on a second. Um, that's all well and good, but actually your son is going to be the one to build the temple. Okay, so this is, uh, this is 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, this is God talking. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, you as in David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come out from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, or the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, when the stripes of the sons of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you before from you from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever so there's there's a couple things going on here one is i've already mentioned that um god is telling david that his son is going to be the one to build the temple not not david himself uh he's also saying you people from your line your descendants will reign and they will they will rule israel forever so this is this is the end here your throne shall be established forever so um a question that immediately arises for us who are living today is okay well there's not really a king in israel and even if there is do we think he's related to david um, is there any way for us to figure that out since the temple and the records were destroyed in 70 AD? I'm not really sure about this. So, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Um, but what we see is that Solomon ultimately is the one who builds the temple. Okay. So we have King David and King Solomon who are both types of Christ. Okay. David is a type of Christ in that he is the king of Israel and that Christ is the king of his people, Israel, or the church. And um, Solomon is the one who builds the temple, the dwelling place of God. And we see that Christ, and we're, well, we're going to see that Christ ultimately is the one who builds the temple, the spiritual temple, the church. Okay, so let's let's just go into some other passages here. And this is a prophecy about Christ in Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Okay, so this is a prophecy of Christ. And we see this um, as we continue to read. We'll flip over to the New Testament. And there's my dog barking because there's trick-or-treaters. Get out of here. First uh, Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen uh, and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So there's, there's uh, Peter quoting Isaiah 28. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's a couple of things going on here. One, we see that ultimately this uh, prophecy in Isaiah is a prophecy of Christ. And we see that Christ is the cornerstone of the temple. Um, so it says here, like living stones are being built as spiritual houses. So you you yourselves, like living stones. Okay, so that, that's us. That's, that's you and me as believers who are being built up into a temple. So basically what you and I are is we're just all in all, we're just a brick in the wall, right? So we're just, we're, we're just um, part of the temple uh, and Christ is the cornerstone. So he's the foundation and everything that, that is built is built upon him. So you have Christ building the temple much like Solomon built the temple. And then one thing that you see here is, uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So these, these are, this is all Old Testament language, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, if you know anything about the book of 1 Peter, you know that it was ultimately addressed to Gentiles, right? So there's obviously Jews in the audience, but for the most part, it's a Gentile audience. And um, Peter is using this Old Testament language that was um, used of the Jews to the Gentiles, being that God has chosen you you are a royal priesthood a holy nation so um you have that old testament imagery for the new testament church okay tracking with me good 
Now we'll move on to Acts 4, um, and this is uh, verses 10 through 12. This is, uh, I believe, Peter again, actually. Um, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, so again, this is the idea that Jesus is the cornerstone and that the Jews rejected him. And um, we see Christ is ultimately, he's building his church with, um, with the Gentiles. Now, we understand that there are Jews as well, um, but he is building his church um, and, and there is no one who is saved but by Christ. Uh, and, even, and as we uh, move on here, this is Ephesians 2. This is a little bit of a longer passage, but that's okay. Um, you can't get enough scripture. So here you go. This is Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so again, this is basically saying you, you, weren't, you weren't part of Israel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for the spirit, for the God, uh, for God by the spirit. Okay. So you see, um, ultimately that the Gentiles are brought into the commonwealth of Israel, who they were once strangers of the covenant of promise, the covenant of grace, um, through Christ. And you see that Christ again is the cornerstone of the temple. He's building the holy temple and you and I are, um, bricks in that temple. Okay. So, so we're part of the temple that, that Christ is building. Um, and then this is 1 Corinthians 10, or 3, sorry, um, 10 through 16. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Okay, so this is basically um, Paul saying he, he started the church in, in Corinth and someone else is continuing the work. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. Now, if anyone builds a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If that work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? So this is just another idea that, that Christ is the foundation of the temple and that we are the temple, the church, uh, the believers today. Um, so we, we really do see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in that he is the king of Israel and that he is the builder of the temple. Okay, now the temple that will last. This temple will never be destroyed. Okay, um, not like the, uh, the physical temple that was destroyed twice. So we see that uh, Christ is the head of the church in uh, Ephesians 5. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this is Colossians 2, 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule, um, is the head of all rule and authority. So that, again, this is uh, a passage saying that Christ is the head, he is the ruler, and he is the, the one who is ultimately the, the authority. Okay, so who is the head of the church? I hope that all these passages have drilled into your head as it drilled into mine that Christ is the head of the church. Okay, so it's not it's not your pastor, it's uh, not your elders, it's not the Pope, um, it's Christ. 
Okay, Christ is the head of the church. So what is the purpose of the church? Now, this really should not be a uh, very hard question, and I'm not going to spend as much time on this one as I had in the uh, last point because we've talked about this, um, Adam and I have, in other podcasts. So really, ultimately, the purpose of the church is, one, the worship of God, and two, the evangelism of the um, elect or the non-believers even, of the, the evangelism of all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay, and ultimately that evangelism will um, result in the building up of the church and the elect coming into the church. So uh, we've done a podcast on the regular principle of worship, which you should go listen to. And we've also done a podcast on evangelism. So I'm not going to spend any more time on this really other than to point you to Matthew 28. So, excuse me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So again, we see that um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. So he is the supreme ruler of all things. And we see this this is called the Great Commission, um, that those who are of Christ are to go and make more people who follow Christ. Okay, so... The Great Commission is to make disciples and to disciple disciples. Um, so make and train. So evangelize and worship. So you, you you might go back and forth as to which one is the ultimate purpose of the church. Uh, I don't think it matters. I think both are ultimate purposes of the church. And you might be able to think of more yourself. And uh, I'm all ears to, to if you come up with more ideas for what the purpose of the church is. You might say that the uh, purpose of the church, you might go to James and say, true religion is this, that we take care of widows and orphans. Um, and yeah, that's a, that's definitely a, a purpose of the church. Um, so th- I think that's fine. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about um, church government and how that works out. Um, but yes, that, that is a that is a means of the church. So that, that, that's fair. I don't think I would say that the church is supposed to be social justice warriors. Okay, we're supposed to care about people um, but ultimately it's the spiritual needs of the people, um, and then the physical needs. So not spiritual needs over physical needs, but spiritual needs, and then physical needs. Um, so if, if you're meeting people's physical needs without Christ, then basically they're going to hell comfortable and that sucks. I mean, that, that may be a crass way to say it, but that sucks. That, that does nothing. Um, that's that's worthless and it's meaningless and it's empty, um, and and so we we need to be preaching Jesus, and then fulfilling their needs to the best of our ability. Um, I think a lot of churches enable people to um, use the system and abuse the system rather than meeting the needs that people have and training them and teaching them how to live the way that God has called us to live, how how to work. Um, how to be parents, um, all, all the types of things that, that keep people um, in poverty. And, and I think that, that we can, the church can come along, like single mothers, for, for example. The, the church absolutely can come along the, these single mothers who, um, through sinful circumstances on their part or others, have got them into this situation and potentially provide child care. But that's only if the single mother is... Um, a member of the church or or a seeking membership and i think well i'll I'll, I'll stop there we will talk about church membership i'm kind of just rambling right now i'm thinking outside or thinking uh on the spot here about this but yeah these are all these are all good thoughts so um that that, that's what we have as far as the, the purpose of the church really is worship and evangelism and uh doing what you can to fulfill the needs of your um membership and we will talk about membership uh, when we think about the church, uh, a question that can come to our mind and should come to our mind is, what um, what are some characteristics of the church? What are what are marks of the church? How how does the church distinguish itself from other organizations? And uh, there there are really four traditionally. You could probably come up with more. I think Mark Dever has nine marks of the church. I haven't really looked at those, but um, classically in Reformed theology, you have four marks of the church. That is word prayer, sacrament, and discipline. 
So let's break those down a little bit. When we talk about word, we're obviously talking about scripture. I think that's that's pretty self-explanatory that the word must be proclaimed. Okay, it must be taught. Um, it must be read. It, it, it must be um, put. It, it, basically, the word is the food for the sheep. So our elders, our pastors, are to take this word and to nourish us with it. So um, scripture is a huge mark of the church. So the preaching and proclamation of the gospel is one mark of the church. Uh, the other is prayer, and that, that, that also, again, is, is self-explanatory. There's multiple passages that talk about um, us as Christians needing to pray. And it, there's many passages in Acts that talk about the church praying for uh, one thing or another. All, oftentimes, it's deliverance of uh, the apostles many times. But, but prayer is a, a mark of the church. If there's not prayer in a church, then it... It could be a, a lifeless corpse. Um, so it may look okay, but it's rotting and, and it's lifeless. And, it, and it's uh, if it's not dead already, it will die if there's no prayer. Okay? So prayer both in the uh, leadership of the church and in the congregants of, of the church. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and then sacraments. So uh, baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper and, uh, you know, infant baptism for sure. So... You, you can, I guess you can still be a church if you don't have uh, infant baptism. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Adam. I'm just kidding, guys. Calm down. Calm down. But yeah, baptism uh, and the Lord's Supper, those are the two sacraments, uh, the only sacraments and sacraments that need to be a part of the um, of the life of the church, whether that's every week, um, quarterly, yearly. I, I mean, I'm going to push for weekly. Um, weekly. Um, Lord's Supper for sure. I think that that should be taking place every every week. I think that's kind of the the pattern that we may see in uh, in Scripture. Um, I think it's also just good for the saints because when when you take the Lord's Supper, um, one you uh, you have Christ's spiritual presence in the church, um, and you have this this reminder of what Christ has done. Not just a reminder, but definitely nothing less than that. And you have this opportunity of repentance. So Paul talks about not coming to the Lord's Supper with uh, with open sin, with unrepentant sin. So we know that if we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday, that that we must constantly be searching our hearts for sin and be repenting of that and confessing it to Christ and turning away from it and and, and pursuing Him more and more. And so if you do that every week, it seems to me that that might um, help you in your struggle against the flesh and the struggle against the world and the devil. Um, It also seems to me that it would um, kind of motivate the elders a little bit to be shepherding the flock and to be guarding the table even more, knowing that, okay, we're taking the Lord's Supper, so I need to be involved in the flock that God has placed before me. I need to be involved in their lives and know their struggles, know their um, desires, their loves, and, and, and these types of things, and they'll be able to fence the table better. They'll be able to encourage us more um, in following Christ. I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a lot harder than quarterly. It's a lot harder than monthly. It's a lot harder than um, doing it once a year, but I think it's worth it. Uh, my church doesn't do it every Sunday. I, I wish we did. Uh, there's reasons that we don't, and I think mainly because it's just it's just difficult and it's change and it's hard for uh, nobody likes change, right? No, nobody does. I hope we do get there though. So sacraments are a, a big part of, of that as well. And so again, like baptism, which goes into um, making babies and evangelizing, uh, both are really good things. So there, there's that, and that needs to be happening every time that a uh, baby is born into a uh, believing family or that uh, someone converts and comes to Christ. Then uh, baptism needs to take place. Um, you don't have to be baptized to be a Christian, but if you are a Christian, you have to be baptized. Does that make sense? Well, it's a little confusing, but that's kind of the idea. I think there's really only one person in the New Testament who was not baptized after conversion, and that would be the thief on the cross. I think every other um, time someone is converted, that that does result in their baptism. Um, and we can argue about children being baptized as well. I think we already have. But uh, Adam's not here right now, so I can say that and uh, not have any pushback. So this is what you get, Adam. Um, baptize your babies, y'all. And then discipline. So discipline is, we, we, we often think of this kind of negatively, like, ooh, discipline, this is not good. Um, but when you think about discipline, discipline um, think about it in this way I uh, pick a pick pick a hobby um, 
someone is disciplined in the area or study of mathematics. Okay, so by discipline, they mean they study, they work hard, um, they, they learn, uh, and it results in change, it results in education and knowledge. So every time the word is preached to you, you are in one sense put under discipline um, because you're being taught the word, you're being confronted with your sin. This doesn't always necessarily have to mean that you are in trouble with the church um, or that you are banned from taking the Lord's Supper or that you are facing excommunication. Although those things may may come, Lord willing, they don't. Um, discipline is, is a big part. So we think of discipleship, um, growing in discipleship, um, growing in scripture memory and uh, our zeal and prayer, our um, longing to be in the word of God. These are all disciplines of the Christian faith. Okay, so that, that's what I mean, or I think that's generally what the, uh, the church has meant by discipline being a mark of the church. Uh, I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, uh, feel free to contact us. And again, this is where it's good for Adam to be here because he could push back on this. But that's okay. So if he were here, I was going to pause right now and we were going to play a little bit of a little game. Now, I've had some people say they don't like the games. They think they're boring. Um, and that's that's okay. They probably are. But we have fun with them. Um, it it kind of breaks up the monotony. We're both Joe Schmo. We're both kind of dummies. We both have kind of mushy brains. So it's good to break up the, the heady talk and uh, just goof off a little bit. So what I was going to do today, because it is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I was just going to uh, give him a little quiz, and I couldn't find one online, so I had to make my own. Um, so I'll go ahead and ask you, and you guys can think about it, and then I will give you the answer. So are you ready for this? Good. Question number one. Who is credited for starting the Reformation? Some might say Luther. That, that would be acceptable. Some might say John Huss. I think that that's also acceptable. Both, both work. So John Huss was someone who uh, was around probably 100 years or so before Luther was. Um, he was really pushing for um, the laity to have access to Scripture. He was pushing for singing in, um, in the Mass. He was pushing for, for all types of things, and ultimately he was uh, burned at the stake. Um, but he, he, he laid the foundation for Luther. Um, and even as, as Luther was um, studying and he was uh, convicted of being a heretic, according to the Roman Catholic Church, they basically said, Martin Luther, you're a Hussite. You hussy. Uh, and Luther, <laughs> Luther agreed with this. He's like, yes, a lot of my theology stems from John Huss. So looking at Luther, who knows when he was born? 1483, November 10th, was when Martin Luther was born. So there's a fun little uh, factoid for you. Where was he born? Elsbin Saxony. And Elsbin Saxony was known for its mine or its coal mines, which is what his father did. Um, what did Luther's father want him to study? And the answer is law. He wanted Martin Luther to be a lawyer. Um, if you wanted to get out of poverty, it was basically become a lawyer or become a priest. Um, so uh, being a coal miner, uh, Luther's father worked very, very hard. And eventually, you know, he he, uh, he provided for his family pretty well. And he was uh, pretty well off towards the end there. But he wanted Luther to uh, study law so that uh, Luther could not only provide for himself and his family, but also for Luther's father and uh, his wife and, and those sorts of things. Why did Luther stop pursuing law and become a monk? Do, 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 do. These are all pretty basic, so I hope you guys all get them. Uh, he was on his way home. Um, maybe he was on his way back to law school from his house. I can't remember which. But anyways, he got caught in a very, very large thunderstorm. Um, and he got scared so badly by a lightning strike that uh, hit right next to him. I mean, he was, he was peeing his pants, basically. He couldn't tell because he was so wet from the rain, um, probably. <laughs> uh, he basically cried out to St. Anne, save me and I will become a monk. And St. Anne, of course, uh, you all know, is the saint of coal miners. Yep, that's right. There's a saint for coal miners. What year did Luther become a monk? 1605 is when he became a monk. Um, 
What did he post on the door of Wittenberg in 1617? We all know that it is the 95... Well, 1617, you dummy. 1517. It was the 95 Thesis. We all, we all know this. And, of course, the 95 Thesis was primarily... Um, wanting to spark a debate between um, his colleagues about the idea of indulgences. He was very disgusted with this. This was ultimately not Luther saying, uh, screw the Roman Catholic Church, I'm out. Uh, he was still very much a Roman Catholic. He did not actually um, depart from them until a few years later, uh, which a lot of people don't really think about. But there's that. Okay, this is boring because Adam's not here. I hope, uh, I hope you guys are still listening. I need another drink, so if you'll excuse me for one second. Another good thing to think about <clears throat> when we think about ecclesiology or when we think about the church is church membership. Church membership is something that a lot of people are turned off by. They say, well, I don't see the uh, any, anywhere in Scripture, anywhere in the New Testament where it says, the Apostle Paul never says that you should become a member of a church. Okay, so they say that, and they're like, it's not biblical, so I'm not going to do it. Um, there's, a, there's a couple things. It, I think it absolutely is biblical, and I will attempt to show that to you here in a, in a moment. But again, if you're looking for specific words uh, to that are in Scripture for you to believe a specific doctrine, that's going to lead you down a bad road. Uh, the classic example, of course, is the Trinity. Uh, that word is never mentioned in the Bible, and yet it is a core foundation um, that if you reject it, it puts you outside the pale of Christianity. And uh, these are the people who reject church membership often do not reject the Trinity, um, but they would not be consistent in doing so since the word is not in Scripture. So um, church membership, what's the point of it? What's the, uh, what's the idea? Um, there's a couple. I think one big point is that God calls us in Hebrews to be subject to our elders, to be subject to our governing authorities in this case it's talking about the uh, governing authorities in the church and the only way that you can do that is if you willingly um, submit yourself to them so think of uh, Matthew 18 uh, this is the classic uh, text for church discipline or when to put someone under church discipline and the text talks about as I'm sure you know that uh, if there's someone who sins against you, you are to go up to them privately and say, "Hey, look, brother or sister in Christ, this is uh, this is what you did, and it really uh, really hurt me. Um, I think you sinned against me, and I'd like to seek out reconciliation. And I, and I really think you owe me an apology, and, and uh, I'd love to forgive you, but you, you have to um, acknowledge that and, and repent of that. Uh, and if the person says, "Nope, didn't do anything wrong, forget that, uh, screw you," basically. Then you are to go back and you are to get another brother or sister in Christ to come with you. You confront the person again. If the person says the same thing, then you are to go before the church. And the church is to cast this person out of the assembly and uh, give them up to Satan and treat them as an unbeliever. So how do you do that if you're not part of a church? So if this is talking about the uh, church Catholic, um, the entire visible church um, and all, for all time, at least in our present day, because you can't really excommunicate dead people. I guess the Catholic Church does it all the time, but we're not Catholics. Uh, but you didn't know that. So <clears throat> the point is that in order to be kicked out of the visible church, you must have first been a part of the visible church. Um, you, you also see that in 1 Corinthians 5 with the discussion of the guy who was having sexual relationship with his mother-in-law or his stepmom, I think. Not his mother-in-law, his stepmom. Yeah. And Paul basically says, look, this guy yeah, purged the evil from, from you. Okay, so Paul is talking about a local congregation and the only way that you can kick someone out of your group is if they are a part of it to begin with. Okay, um, another uh, decent argument for church membership, even though it's not explicitly stated, would be First Peter five, and so this is kind of a discussion about elders. Okay, so this is First Peter five verses one through four. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading <coughs> crown of glory. 
So you have this idea of the chief shepherd, uh, which is Christ, and you have those who are under shepherds, um, the elders. And so uh, one key word here is um, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Um, other translations have that is in your charge. Okay, so you, you have these individual flocks or churches that individual groups of elders, um, depending on your church government or elder, uh, are responsible for. So um, you, you have this idea of, I guess you could even say like under flocks, perhaps, um, but, but the idea that there are individual congregations. And so we, um, as Christians, are to put ourselves under the authority of the elders who are under the authority of Christ. Um, and I, I think this, this passage is good because a lot of people will say they don't want to be members of a church because they have been burned by previous churches. And this is a very sad reality. This is something that um, absolutely takes place. I, I know plenty of people who have been burned by churches before. I think that uh, <clears throat> Adam and I could say that um, we've experienced some trauma from uh, church falling apart before as well. Um, Thankfully, you know, Christ forgives um, all types of people for all types of sins. And so that's uh, that's been taken care of by the grace of God. But you have these people who just, um, they're still hurting and they're still fearful and they don't want to submit themselves to elders, um, to local churches because they've been burned before. And so this passage talks about how um, elders are to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So when you're, when you're seeking out a church um, and you're seeking out church membership, it's, it's very, I think it's okay to attend a church for um, an extended period of time. I mean, depending on the, the period of time, but for uh, more than like a week or two to get to know the elders, to get to know the church, uh, to get to know their character, to get to know the people, uh, to see that these are uh, these are really good elders and they will take care of you, they will love on you, um, they will feed you, uh, they will shepherd your family, your, your uh, children, um, and then they won't domineer over you. They won't, um, they won't uh, abuse you, essentially. I, I, th- I think that's okay to do, but... I think saying that I'm going to go to a church and I'm not going to become a member is equivalent to saying I am going to live with my girlfriend. I'm going to have sex with my girlfriend, but I'm not going to marry her. Um, You're wanting all the benefits of membership without the commitment of it, Um, without the idea. You want all the good things um, while being able to bail on the bad. So if you're not a member of a church and things start to go south, you can say, all right, peace, I'm out. I'm going to another church. Um, whereas if you're a member, you're kind of committed to that church. Um, you're you're committed to its growth. You're committed to its care. Um, you're committed to being cared for by it. Um, so when things get hard, you need to be there for it. Um, you can't just skip town and leave. And it, I, I think it's a, a fine analogy <clears throat> between that and uh, living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend without being married. Because um, you can enjoy the benefits without the commitment. And that's that's not really, that's that's really dishonoring. Um, to the church, and if there's anybody listening who's doing that um, with with someone you really truly love, you, you, you need to you need to one repent of, of your sin, knowing that Christ will forgive you, and you need to um, make things right. Either marry this person or uh, move on. Um, same thing with the church. If if you're going to a church and uh, you're not a member, if you're not a member uh, because you've been abused. You, you need to um, you need to understand that that Christ heals all wounds and that that can be very difficult at times so I don't want to uh, come on too harsh about that so let me let me back off a little bit on that because I don't know everyone's situation um, but if you're going to a church and you're you're not becoming a member and it's not because the elders are bad elders uh, you need to become a member of that church uh, so another question that might arise about church membership, which I haven't really thought about, is what if you don't agree with them on everything doctrinally? Uh, well, if there's not a church that you, well, first of all, you're not gonna agree with a church that agrees with everything on you doctrinally, unless um, you're the only one in that church, in which case you uh, you have other issues. But if you are, uh, if you're not becoming a member of a church, uh, let's say because of your views on baptism, if there's not a, if you're Presbyterian and there's not a good Presbyterian church around, 
um, I think it's okay for you to to become a member of a Baptist church, assuming they'll accept you. I mean, I know many will not because of the issue of baptism, uh, because they will say that our baptism is not valid um, if we are baptized as infants. Um, that that may be another thing that you'll have to work out <clears throat> with the elders of that church, or um, same thing with Baptists wanting to join a Presbyterian church. Um, I, I don't know what they would say about you and having to baptize your children again that's that's something that that you can work out with those people but you need to be having these conversations i think um and i understand everyone's circumstance is different so i don't want to come down too dogmatically on either side of that um, but if at all possible we we need to be searching for uh, membership within the local body okay so um another thing that we need to think about when we think about um, ecclesiology, when we think about the church, is church government. Uh, we need to think about how is the church run. And there are really three uh, main ideas on church government. There may be more than that, but there's really three main ones. There is um, there is Episcopalianism, um, not necessarily denomination. Um, there is Presbyterianism, and there is Congregationalism. Okay, so let me uh, briefly describe what those are. I'm sure some of you or many of you may even know, uh, but there may be people who do not. Um, and so I'm talking to, to y'all. Like, we're, we're Joe Schmo. okay? It's okay that uh, that we don't know everything. I certainly do not. Adam definitely does not. <laughs> um, this is this is why we learn, and it's always good to, uh, to revisit these things. Okay. So let's start with <coughs> Episcopalian. I'm sorry, that was loud. Episcopalianism or uh, the idea of a hierarchy. So what Episcopalianism, what that form of government is, is it's kind of a top-down effect. So the classic um, uh, classic Episcopalian church government is the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not just trying to pick on the Roman Catholic Church. There is uh, Episcopalians obviously do this, and there are many uh, Protestant Episcopalians, um, Methodists. Uh, I think the Church of England is like this, where it's basically there's one person at the top, and then there are people under uh, that Person. So think of, let's just go with the Roman Catholic Church because that's the easiest. Think of you've got <clears throat> individual priests at individual parishes, okay? So these priests within a geographical location, um, think of all the priests in Indianapolis, for instance, that would be called a diocese, all right? So a diocese is just a geographical location made up of individual parishes run by priests, okay? So in each diocese, you have someone above the priests and they are called um, bishops, Okay, so bishops are in charge of a whole entire diocese. Okay, so let's say you've got the Diocese of Indianapolis, the Diocese of Fishers, the Diocese of Noblesville, or uh, wherever you live, pick pick a city, that's fine. And I don't think there's actually diocese. I'm just using this as an example. Okay, so the priest basically will dictate, okay, uh, priest, I want you to do this here, priest, I want you to do that there. <clears throat> I think they may even be responsible for um, putting priests in different locations and different churches. That may be the archbishop. So the archbishop is in charge of multiple dioceses. If that's how you say it, right? Again, if I'm getting this wrong, guys, correct me on it. So you have all these different uh, geographical locations with all these different types of uh, um, parishes or churches um, and bishops that the archbishop is over and ahead of. Um, so you've got you know your pope, your cardinals, your bishops, your arch or your archbishops, your bishops, uh, your priests, and, and things like that. So it's very much a top-down effect. So think of like a food triangle. Um, where you've got the person at the top and everything below it falls under that person's specific authority. Okay, Then you've got the idea of congregationalism, and there's two different types of congregationalism. You've got single-elder-led single congregationalism and multi-elder-led congregationalism. So uh, let's just talk about the idea of congregationalism first by itself. So what congregationalism is, is it's got one individual church, Okay, and uh, if you're a single-elder-led church, then that elder is in charge or the pastor as, as many will say is in charge of everyone in that congregation so basically kind of what they say goes now it's not totally domineering it's not totally a dictatorship um, like it may sound the way i'm describing it but it, it kind of works out that way and so a single L, elder led congregation would kind of be held accountable to the board of deacons uh, or, or a committee of deacons whatever uh, you want to say but they're uh, autonomous, so they're completely separate from any other church. So there's no real hierarchy, so there's no archbishop, or there's no pope or anything that comes down and says, actually, you guys need to change this, this, and this, and this. Um, so the, the congregation in the congregational form of church government um, 
will vote on things. They will vote on um, if they want to call a pastor, accept the pastor, um, pick pick your poison. There's there's all types of things that they, they can vote on. A multi-elder-led congregational church is very much the same in that it is autonomous from any other outside authority other than within its own specific body. Um, it is led by multiple elders. So there would be, I think they would say this, there would be a parity and plurality of elders in that there are um, a parity, there's multiple elders and a plural, or oh, sorry, I said that wrong, a plurality as in multiple elders and a parity as in all the elders share the exact same amount of authority. So one vote equals one vote. So um, the pastor or the, the preacher, the main preacher of that church would not vote and it wouldn't count for three votes, whereas another elder would only count for one. So um, they're, they're accountable to themselves, they're accountable to the congregation, but they're not accountable to any other congregation. Other congregations may come and um, give them advice, they may seek out advice and everything, but ultimately they are autonomous and responsible for themselves. There's, there's no one else who can come in and say, you guys need to change this or you're, you're in the wrong here. Okay, um, and then very quickly, <clears throat> there is the Presbyterian form of church government, which is kind of congregationalism and Episcopalianism kind of meshed into one. So you have um, each individual congregation is a multi-elder-led congregation. Okay, so you have the parity and plurality of elders in that congregation. Um, and you have what's called a presbytery. And a presbytery is basically the same idea of a diocese, and that is a bunch of congregations within a geographical location. Okay, so the difference between a presbytery and a diocese is a diocese is run by a bishop, whereas a presbytery is run by multiple elders. So it's very much a representative type of church government. Whereas, um, so you have presbytery meetings, which are um, basically two elders from each congregation get together and discuss things that are taking place within their congregation. So it may be a let's let's help each other um, seek a, a, an ultimate goal here, or there may be things which is which have taken place multiple times where a group of elders within one church has attempted to discipline someone and they were doing it unjustly. And so this person, instead of just taking it um, and not being able to appeal to a higher authority, um, much like a congregational church is, what they're able to do is they're able to appeal to the presbytery. So the presbytery will come in and they will look at this uh, elders, these elders' decision not to discipline these people, and they will say, okay, actually they were in the right or they were in the wrong. So you have elders who are accountable to other elders outside of their um, their church. Now, what doesn't take place is you don't have an elder from another church being able to exercise authority over you the way that an elder at your church would be able to do, um, not not in the same way. And then, um, and and uh, sticking with the Presbyterian form of government, you have what's called a synod or a general assembly. Many many con or many denominations have a general assembly, and that's basically where um, everyone in the denomination gets together. So. What a synod is for the RPCNA is that all the presbyteries get together. So basically, all the uh, a representative from every church or two representatives from every church get together um, in synod, and they have what's ba basically um, a presbytery meeting on steroids, kind of kind of type of thing. So church government or the church discipline example, rather, let's say that that. Um, the, the presbytery sticks with the elders' original decision about discipline. That person can appeal even higher to synod, and then synod will uh, form a committee and then make a decision one way or another. Um, so it's, it's very much a representative type. So I think uh, congregational, multi elder congregationalism is really, really good. I think Presbyterianism is better. Um, and I don't have time really to go into a. Um, biblical exegetical discussion on the idea of church government other than that elders exist um that's without a shadow of doubt they are to shepherd you that's without a shadow of a doubt um, as far as the uh, governmental structure goes i'm going to save that for you what i want you to do is i want you to pick up a book called four views of the church or um, there's another one called um, who runs the church and so it's very much a debate type of a book where you've got Basically, the, the, the three well, plus one. So there's four uh, basic ideas in this book, Who Runs the Church? You've got the Episcopalian, the Presbyterian, the Multi-Elder Congregation, and the Single-Elder Congregation. And this is much like the baptism book that I recommended, um, four views or three views on baptism. 
Um, whereas you're, you're going to get a, um, an accurate view of each person's understanding of how scripture um, dictates the church be run. And then you have the other three guys coming in and kind of giving a rebuttal type of a thing. So you have it very accurate. So rather than me, who is very biased and hopelessly Presbyterian, and Adam, who is a, I don't know what he is, honestly. I think he could be a Presbyterian Baptist. Um, he's definitely a multi-elder-led congregation, for sure. He could probably speak to that. Uh, but I'll let him do that instead of me speculate. So uh, go pick up that book. It is definitely worth your time. Um, and speaking of time, it is over 45. Jeez. I'm sorry, guys. I've been talking a lot. Uh, if you've been listening to just me, I appreciate that. But we're going to go ahead and wrap up right now. That was our discussion of ecclesiology. If you all would be so kind as to like our Facebook page at Joe Schmo Theology um, on Facebook, that would be fantastic. Uh, rate us on iTunes. Review us on iTunes. We need them. We have one, and we need multiple people. Give us a share on Facebook. That would be very, very helpful. And remember, y'all, every Joe Schmo can grow some mo. Peace. And you might not like it. You should. You should love it. She's a building of beings being constructed. Christ is the cornerstone. Foundation built on another reuse of homes. She's built on them, supported by them, conformed to them. Now she's a body of bodies to transform through them. A temple that breathes. We are the halls. We are the floorboards. Or more, we are the walls. Manifold wisdom of God, no longer a mystery. The church pinnacle of our salvific history. It's one flesh union, homie. Triunion is glorified through our corporate eyes, communion. Present reality, she was born a casualty Though she's made alive, she's still affected by depravity Once living sin and enslaved by your lust Folks catch a slip and they turn away disgusting She's a work in progress, Christ is the head of her And he wash her clean with the words he just said to her Already pretty, but really she's not dressed And sometimes she looks silly, but she's far from a mess yes, please don't be dissing, cause Jesus done paid a grip And if you didn't, then you should call her missus I'm talking about the church, yeah Jesus feel about his church And yeah, they make disciples Got many conversions Take care of them widows and orphans Man, they be working But none of them are churching No church structure No elders and no discipline They have no conductor And they don't submit But quite a few of them baptized People, how I pray that you look at this thing from God's eyes Take responsibility inside the whole council Not just the area where you might have a mouthful Who should folks submit to? Who conduct the discipline and excommunicated what body Church, yeah. I know she may look pretty, but man, come.
church out there, man. I ain't saying just run away and leave. Some of y'all may have to wrestle with some churches, you know what I'm saying? But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, man. She the church, man. And I ain't dissing parent churches, none of that. I'm just saying, have a love for the, the full council. Submit to them and run with them. Let's do it. We the church. We the church. We the church. This is for you, Adam. Oh, my back hurts from carrying that cast. Oh, man. I need a massage or something. Jeez.